Section 13 of And Even Now by Max Beerbohm. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section 13. Quia Imperfectum. 1918. I have often wondered that no one has set himself to collect unfinished works of art. There is a peculiar charm for all of us in that which was still in the making when its maker died, or in that which he laid aside because he was tired of it, or didn't see his way to the end of it, or wanted to go on to something else. The very globe we live on is a far more fascinating sphere than it can have been when men supposed that men like themselves would be on it to the end of time. It is only since we heard what Darwin had to say, only since we have had to accept as improvisable what lies far ahead, that the book of life has taken so strong a hold on us, and, once taken up, cannot, as the reviewers say, readily be laid down. The work doesn't strike us as a masterpiece yet, certainly, but who knows that it isn't, that it won't be, judged as a whole. For sheer creativeness, no human artist, I take it, has a higher repute than Michelangelo. None, perhaps, has a repute so high. But what if Michelangelo had been a little more persevering? All those years he spent in the process of just a-going to begin Pope Julius's tomb, and again all those blank spaces for his pictures and bare pedestals for his statues in the baptistery of San Lorenzo. Ought we to regret them quite so passionately as we do? His patrons were apt to think him an impossible person to deal with. But I suspect that there may have been a certain high cunning in what appeared to be a mere lovable fault of temperament. When Michelangelo actually did bring a thing off, the result was not always more than magnificent. His David is magnificent, but it isn't David. One is duly awed, but to see the master at his best, back one goes from the Academia to that marvellous bleak baptistery which he left that we should see in the mind's eye just that very best. It was there some years ago, as I stood before the half-done marvel of the night and morning, that I first conceived the idea of a museum of incomplete masterpieces. And now I mean to organize the thing on my own account. The baptistery itself, so full of unfulfillment, and with such a wealth at present of spare space, will be the ideal setting for my treasures. There be it that the public shall throng to steep itself in the splendor of possibilities, beholding under glass, and perhaps in excellent preservation, Penelope's web, and the original designs for the Tower of Babel, the draft made by Mr. Asquith for a reformed House of Lords, and the notes jotted down by the sometime German Emperor for a proclamation from Versailles to the citizens of Paris. There, too, shall be the manuscript of that fragmentary Iphigenie, which Racine laid aside so meekly at the behest of Mademoiselle de Treves. Coque cela fut de mon mieux and there an early score of that one unfinished symphony of beethoven's i forget the number of it but anyhow it is my favourite among the pictures 
Rossetti's oil painting of Found must be ruled out, because we know by more than one drawing just what it would have been, and how much less good than those drawings. But Leonardo's St. Sebastian, even if it isn't Leonardo's, shall be there, and Whistler's Miss Connie Gilchrist, and numerous other pictures that I would mention if my mind were not so full of one picture, to which, if I can find it and acquire it, a special place of honour shall be given. A certain huge picture in which a life-sized gentleman, draped in a white mantle, sits on a fallen obelisk and surveys the ruined temples of the Campagna Romana. The reader knits his brow. Evidently, he has not just been reading Goethe's Travels in Italy. I have. Or, rather, I have just been reading a translation of it, published in 1885 by George Bell and Sons. I dare say it isn't a very good translation, for one has always understood that Goethe, despite a resistant medium, wrote well, an accomplishment which this translator hardly wins one to suspect. And I dare say the painting I so want to see and have isn't a very good painting. Wilhelm Tischbein is hardly a name to conjure with, though in his day, as a practitioner in the historical style, and as a rapturous resident in Rome, Tischbein did great things. Big things, at any rate. He did crowds of heroes in helmets looked down at by gods on clouds. He did centaurs leaping ravines, Sabine women, sieges of Troy. And he did this portrait of Goethe. At least, he began it. Why didn't he finish it? That is a problem as to which one can but hazard guesses, reading between the lines of Goethe's letters. The great point is that it never was finished. By that point, as you read between those lines, you will be amused if you are unkind, and worried if you are humane. Worried, yet also pleased. Goethe has more than once been described as the perfect man. He was assuredly a personage on the great scale, in the grand manner, gloriously balanced, rounded, and it is a fact that he was not made of marble. He started with all the disadvantages of flesh and blood, and retained them to the last. Yet from no angle, as he went his long way, could it be plausibly hinted that he wasn't sublime. Endearing though failure always is, we grudge no man a moderately successful career, and glory itself we will wink at if it befall some thoroughly good fellow. But a man whose career was glorious without intermission, decade after decade, does sorely try our patience. He, we know, cannot have been a thoroughly good fellow. Of Goethe, we are shy for such reasons as that he was never injudicious, never lazy, always in his best form, and always in love with some lady or another, just so much as was good for the development of his soul and his art, but never more than that by a tittle. Fate decreed that Sir Willoughby Patterne should cut a ridiculous figure, and so earn our forgiveness. Fate may have had a similar plan for Goethe. If so, it went all awry. 
Yet, in the course of that pageant, his career, there did happen just one humiliation, one thing that needed to be hushed up. There Tischbein's defalcation was, a chip in the marble, a flaw in the crystal, just one thread loose in the great grand tapestry. Men of genius are not quick judges of character. Deep thinking and high imagining blunt that trivial instinct by which you and I size people up. Had you and I been at Goethe's elbow when, in the October of 1786, he entered Rome and was received by the excited Tischbein, no doubt we should have whispered in his ear, Beware of that man. He will one day fail you. Unassisted, Goethe had no misgivings. For some years he had been receiving letters from this Herr Tischbein. They were the letters of a man steeped in the sorrows of Werther and in all else that Goethe had written. This was a matter of course. But also they were the letters of a man familiar with all the treasures of Rome. All Italy was desirable, but it was especially towards great Rome that the soul of the illustrious poet the confined state councillor of Weimar, had been ever yearning, so that when came the longed-for day, and the duke gave leave of absence, and Goethe, closing his official portfolio with a snap, and imprinting a fervent but hasty kiss on the hand of Frau von Stein, fared forth on his pilgrimage, Tischbein was a prospect inseparably bound up for him with that of the Seven Hills. Baedeker had not been born. Tischbein would be a great saviour of time and trouble. Nor was this hope unfulfilled. Tischbein was assiduous, enthusiastic, indefatigable. In the early letters to Frau Stein, to Herder, and others, his name is always cropping up for commendation. Of Tischbein I have much to say and much to boast. A thorough and original German. He has always been thinking of me, ever providing for my wants. In his society, all my enjoyments are more than doubled. He was thirty-five years old, two years younger than Goethe, and one guesses him to have been a stocky little man, with those short, thick legs which denote indefatigability. One guesses him blond and rosy, very voluble, very guttural, with a wealth of forceful, but not graceful, gesture. One is on safer ground in guessing him vastly proud of trotting Goethe round. Such fame throughout Europe had Goethe won by his works that it was necessary for him to travel incognito. Not that his identity wasn't an open secret, nor that he himself would have wished it hid. Great artists are always vain. To say that a man is vain means merely that he is pleased with the effect he produces on other people. A conceited man is satisfied with the effect he produces on himself. Any great artist is far too perceptive and too exigent to be satisfied with that effect, and hence in vanity he seeks solace. Goethe, you may be sure, enjoyed the hero-worshipful gaze focused on him from all the tables of the Café Greco. But not for adulation had he come to Rome. Rome was what he had come for, and the fussers of the coteries must not pester him in his golden preoccupation with the antique world. 
Tischbein was very useful in warding off the profane throng, fanning away the flies. Let us hope he was actuated solely by zeal in Goethe's interest, not by the desire to swagger as a monopolist. Clear it is, though, that he scented fine opportunities in Goethe's relation to him. Suppose he could rope his illustrious friend in as a collaborator. He had begun a series of paintings on the theme of primeval man. Goethe was much impressed by these. Tischbein suggested a great poem on the theme of primeval man. A volume of engravings after Tischbein, with running poetic commentary by Goethe. Indeed, the frontispiece for such a joint work, writes Goethe in one of his letters, is already designed. Pushful Tischbein. But Goethe, though he was the most courteous of men, was not of the stuff of which collaborators are made. During our walks together, and can you not see those two together pacing up and down the groves of the Villa Pamphili or around the ruins of the Temple of Jupiter, little Tischbein gesticulating and peering up into Goethe's face? and Goethe with his hands clasped behind him, ever nodding in a non-committal manner. He has talked with me in the hope of gaining me over to his views and getting me to enter upon the plan. Goethe admits in another letter that the idea is beautiful. Only, he adds, the artist and the poet must be many years together in order to carry out and execute such a work. And one conceives that he felt a certain lack of beauty in the idea of being with Tischbein for many years. Did I not fear to enter upon any new tasks at present, I might perhaps be tempted. This I take to be but the repetition of a formula often used in the course of those walks. In no later letter than November is the scheme mentioned. Tischbein had evidently ceased to press it. Anon he fell back on a scheme less glorious, but likelier to bear fruit. Latterly, writes Goethe, I have observed Tischbein regarding me, and now... Note the demure pride. It appears that he has long cherished the idea of painting my portrait. Ernest Sightseer, though he was, and hard at work on various manuscripts in the intervals of sightseeing, it is evident that to sit for his portrait was a new task which he did not fear to enter upon at present. Nor need we be surprised. It seems to be a law of nature that no man, unless he has some obvious physical deformity, ever is loath to sit for his portrait. A man may be old, he may be ugly, he may be burdened with grave responsibilities to the nation, and that nation be at a crisis of its history, but none of these considerations, nor all of them together, will deter him from sitting for his portrait. Depend on him to arrive at the studio punctually, to surrender himself and sit as still as a mouse, trying to look his best in whatever posture the painter shall have selected as characteristic, and talking, if he have leave to talk, with a touching humility and with a keen sense of his privilege in being allowed to pick up a few ideas about art. 
To a dentist or a hairdresser, he surrenders himself without enthusiasm, even with resentment. But in the atmosphere of a studio, there is something that entrances him. Perhaps it is the smell of turpentine that goes to his head. Or, more likely, it is the idea of immortality, so that he was specially susceptible to the notion of being immortalized. The design is already settled, and the canvas stretched. And I have no doubt that in the original German these words ring like the opening of a ballad. The anchor's up and the sail is spread, as I and you belike recited in childhood. The ship in that poem foundered, if I remember rightly, so that the analogy to Goethe's words is all the more striking. It is in this same letter that the poet mentions those three great points which I have already laid before you. The fallen obelisk for him to sit on, the white mantle to drape him, and the ruined temples for him to look at. It will form a beautiful piece, but, he sadly calculates, it will be rather too big for our northern habitations. Courage! There will be plenty of room for it in the baptistery of San Lorenzo. Meanwhile, the work progressed. A brief visit to Naples and Sicily was part of Goethe's campaign, and he was to set forth from Rome, taking Tischbein with him, immediately after the close of Carnival, but not a moment before. Needless to say, he had no idea of flinging himself into the Carnival, after the fashion of lesser and lighter tourists, but the Carnival was a great phenomenon to be studied. All embracing Goethe, remember, was nearly as keen on science as on art. He had ever been patient in poring over plants botanically, and fishes ichthyologically, and minerals mineralogically. And now, day by day, he studied the carnival carnivalogically, from a strictly carnivalogical standpoint, taking notes on which he founded later a classic treatise. His presence was not needed in the studio during these days, for the life-sized portrait begins already to stand out from the canvas, and Tischbein was now painting the folds of the mantle which were swathed around a clay figure. He is working away diligently, for the work must, he says, be brought to a certain point before we start for Naples. Besides the mantle, Tischbein was doing the Campagna. I remember that some years ago an acquaintance of mine, a painter who was neither successful nor talented, but always buoyant, told me he was starting for Italy the next day. I am going, he said, to paint the Campagna. The Campagna wants painting. Tischbein was evidently giving it a good dose of what it wanted. It takes no little time writes Goethe to Frau von Stein, merely to cover so large a field of canvas with colors. Ash Wednesday ushered itself in, and ushered the carnival out. The curtain falls, rising a few days later on the Bay of Naples. Re-enter Goethe and Tischbein. Bright blue backcloth. Incidental music of baccarolles, etc. For a while all goes splendidly well. 
Sane Quixote and ascetic Sancho visit the churches, the museums, visit Pompeii, visit our ambassador, Sir William Hamilton, that accomplished man. Vesuvius is visited, too, thrice by Goethe, but, here for the first time we feel a vague uneasiness, only once by Tischbein. To Goethe, as you may well imagine, Vesuvius was strongly attractive. At his every ascent he was very brave, going as near as possible to the crater, which he approached very much as he had approached the carnival, not with any wish to fling himself into it, but as a resolute scientific inquirer. Tischbein, on the other hand, merely disliked and feared Vesuvius. He said it had no ascetic value, and at his one ascent did not accompany Goethe to the crater's edge. He seems to have regarded Goethe's bravery as rashness, here, you see, is a rift, ever so slight, but of evil omen, what seismologists call a fault. Goethe was unconscious of its warning. Throughout his sojourn in Naples, he seems to have thought that Tischbein in Naples was the same as Tischbein in Rome. Of some persons, it is true, that change of sky works no change of soul. Oddly enough, Goethe reckoned himself among the changeable. In one of his letters he calls himself quite an altered man, and asserts that he is given over to a sort of intoxicated self-forgetfulness, a condition to which his letters testify not at all. In a later bulletin he is nearer the mark. Were I not impelled by the German spirit and a desire to learn and do rather than to enjoy, I should tarry a little longer in this school of a light-hearted and happy life, and try to profit by it still more. A truly priceless passage, this, with a solemnity transcending logic, as who should say, were I not so thoroughly German, I should be thoroughly German. Tischbein was of less stern stuff, and it is clear that Naples fostered in him a lightness which Rome had repressed. Goethe says that he himself puzzled the people in Neapolitan society. Tischbein pleases them far better. This evening he hastily painted some heads of the size of life, and about these they disported themselves as strangely as the New Zealanders at the sight of a ship of war. One feels that but for Goethe's presence, Tischbein would have cut New Zealand capers too. A week later he did an utterly astounding thing. He told Goethe that he would not be accompanying him to Sicily. He did not, of course, say, The novelty of your greatness has worn off, your solemnity oppresses me, be off and leave me to enjoy myself in Naples on sea, Naples the queen of watering places. He spoke of work which he had undertaken and recommended as travelling companion for Goethe, a young man of the name of Kniep. Goethe, we may be sure, was restrained by pride from any show of wrath. Pride compelled him to make light of the matter in his epistles to the Weimarians. Even Kniep he accepted with a good grace, though not without misgivings. He needed a man who would execute for him sketches and paintings of all that in the districts passed through was worthy of record. He had already heard Kniep highly spoken of as a clever draughtsman, only his industry was not much commended. 
our hearts sink. I have tolerably studied his character, and think the ground of his censure arises rather from a want of decision, which may certainly be overcome if we are long together. Our hearts sink lower. Kniep will never do. Kniep will play the deuce. We are sure of it. And yet, such is life, Kniep turns out very well. Goethe gives the rosiest reports of the young man's cheerful ways and strict attention to the business of sketching. It may be that these reports were coloured partly by a desire to set Tischbein down, but there seems to be no doubt that Goethe liked Kniep greatly and rejoiced in the quantity and quality of his work. At Palermo, one evening, Goethe sat reading Homer and making an impromptu translation for the benefit of Kniep who had well deserved by his diligent exertions this day some agreeable refreshment over a glass of wine this is a pleasing little scene and is typical of the whole tour in the middle of may goethe returns to naples and lo tischbein was not there to receive him tischbein if you please had skipped back to rome bidding his Neapolitan friends look to his great compatriot. Pride, again, forbade Goethe to show displeasure, and again our reading has to be done between the lines. In the first week of June he was once more in Rome. I can imagine with what high courtesy, as though there were nothing to rebuke, he treated Tischbein, but it is possible that his manner would have been less perfect had the portrait not been unfinished. His sittings were resumed. It seems that Signora Zucchi, better known to the world as Angelica Kaufmann, had also begun to paint him. But great as was Goethe's esteem for the mind of that nice woman, he set no store on this fluttering attempt of hers. Her picture is a pretty fellow, to be sure, but not a trace of me. It was by the large and firm historic mode of Tischbein that he, not exactly in his habit as he lived, but in the white mantle that so well became him, and on the worthy throne of the fallen obelisk, was to be handed down to the gaze of future ages. Was to be, yes. On June 27th, he reports that Tischbein's work is succeeding happily, the likeness is striking, and the conception pleases everybody. Three days later, Tischbein goes to Naples. Incredible! We stare aghast, as in the presence of some great dignitary from behind whom, by a ribald hand, a chair is withdrawn when he is in the act of sitting down. Tischbein had, as it were, withdrawn the obelisk. What was Goethe to do? What can a dignitary in such case do? He cannot turn and recriminate. That would but lower him the more. Can he behave as though nothing had happened? Johann Wolfgang von Goethe tried to do so, and it must have been in support of this attempt that he consented to leave his own quarters and reside a while in the studio of the outgoing Tischbein. That slippery man does, it is true, seem to have given out that he would not be away very long, and the prospect of his return may well have been reckoned in mitigation of his going. 
Goethe had leave from the Duke of Weimar to prolong his Italian holiday till the spring of next year. It is possible that Tischbein really did mean to come back and finish the picture. Goethe had, at any rate, no reason for not hoping. "'When you think of me, think of me as happy,' he directs. And had he not indeed reasons for happiness? He had the most perfect health. He was writing masterpieces. He was in Rome. Rome, which no pilgrim had loved with a rapture deeper than his. This wonderful old Rome, that lingered on almost to our own day, under the conserving shadow of the temporal power. A Rome in which the emperors kept unquestionably their fallen day about them. No pilgrim had wandered with a richer enthusiasm along those highways and those great storied spaces. It is pleasing to watch in what deep draughts Goethe drank Rome in. But I fancy that now in his second year of sojourn he tended to remain within the city walls, caring less than of yore for the Campagna, and I suspect that if ever he did stray out there, he averted his eyes from anything in the nature of a ruined temple. Of one thing I am sure, the huge canvas in the studio had its face to the wall. There is never a reference to it by Goethe in any letter after that of June 27th. But I surmise that its nearness continually worked on him, and that sometimes, when no one was by, he all unwillingly approached it. He moved it out into a good light, and, stepping back, gazed at it for a long time. I wonder that Tischbein was not shamed telepathically to return. What was it that had made Tischbein, not once but thrice, abandon Goethe? We have no right to suppose he had plotted to avenge himself for the poet's refusal to collaborate with him on the theme of primeval man. A likelier explanation is merely that Goethe, as I have suggested, irked him. Forty years elapsed before Goethe collected his letters from Italy and made a book of them, and in this book he included, how magnanimous old men are, several letters written to him from Naples by his deserter. These are shallow but vivid documents, the effusions of one for whom the visible world suffices. I take it that Tischbein was an historic painter, because no ambitious painter in those days wasn't. In Goethe the historic sense was as innate as the aesthetic, so was the ethical sense, so was the scientific sense and the three of them forever cropping up in his discourse may well be understood to have been too much for this simple tischbein but you ask can mere boredom make a man act so cruelly as this man acted well there may have been another cause and a more interesting one i have mentioned that goethe and tischbein visited our ambassador in naples his Excellency was at that time a widower, but his establishment was already graced by his future wife, Miss Emma Hart, whose beauty is so well known to us all. Tischbein, wrote Goethe a few days afterwards, is engaged in painting her. Later in the year, Tischbein, soon after his return to Naples, sent to Goethe a sketch for a painting he had now done of Miss Hart as Iphigenia at the sacrificial altar. Perhaps he had wondered that she should sacrifice herself to Sir William Hamilton. 
I like Hamilton uncommonly, is a phrase culled from one of his letters, and when a man is very hearty about the protector of a very beautiful woman, one begins to be suspicious. I do not mean to suggest that Miss Hart, though it is true she had not yet met Nelson, was fascinated by Tischbein, but we have no reason to suppose that Tischbein was less susceptible than Romney. Altogether, it seems likely enough that the future Lady Hamilton's fine eyes were Tischbein's main reason for not going to Sicily, and afterwards for his sudden exodus to Rome. But why, in this case, did he leave Naples? Why go back to Rome when Goethe was in Sicily? I hope he went for the purpose of shaking off his infatuation for Miss Hart. I am loath to think he went merely to wind up his affairs in Rome. I will assume that only after a sharp conflict, in which he fought hard on the side of duty against love, did he relapse to Naples. But I won't pretend to wish he had finished that portrait. If you know where that portrait is, tell me. I want it. I have tried to trace it, vainly. What became of it? I thought I might find this out in George Henry Lew's Life of Goethe, but Lew's had a hero-worship for Goethe. He thought him greater than George Eliot, and in the whole book there is but one cold mention of Tischbein's name. Mr. Oscar Browning, in the Encyclopedia Britannica, names Tischbein as Goethe's constant companion in the early days at Rome, and says nothing else about him. In fact, the hero-worshippers have evidently conspired to hush up the affront to their hero. Even the Penny Cyclopedia, 1842, which devotes a column to the little Tischbein himself, and goes into various details of his career, is silent about the portrait of Goethe. I learned from that column that Tischbein became director of the Neapolitan Academy at a salary of 600 ducats, and resided in Naples until the Revolution of 99, when he returned in haste to Germany. Suppose he passed through Rome on his way. A homing fugitive would not pause to burden himself with a vast, unfinished canvas. We may be sure the canvas remained in that Roman studio, an object of mild interest to successive occupants. Is it still there? Does the studio itself still exist? Belike it has been demolished with so much else. What became of the expropriated canvas? It wouldn't have been buried in the new foundations. Someone must have staggered away with it. Whither? Somewhere, I am sure, in some dark vault or cellar, it languishes. Seek it. Fetch it out. Bring it to me in triumph. You will always find me in the baptistry of San Lorenzo. But I have formed so clear and sharp a preconception of the portrait that I am likely to be disappointed at sight of what you bring me. I see in my mind's eye every falling fold of the white mantle, the nobly rounded calf of the leg on which rests the forearm, the highlight on the black silk stocking, the shoes, the hands are rather sketchy, the sky is a mere slab, the ruined temples are no more than adumbrated, but the expression of the face is perfectly, epitomically, that of a great man surveying a great alien scene 
and gauging its import not without a keen sense of its dramatic conjunction with himself marius in carthage and napoleon before the sphinx wordsworth on london bridge and cortez on the peak of darien but most of all certainly goethe in the campagna so you see i cannot promise to be horribly let down by tischbein's actual handiwork i may even have to take back my promise that it shall have a place of honour but i shall not utterly reject it unless on the plea that a collection of unfinished works should itself have some great touch of incompletion End of section 13